0: Welcome to the Labor History Podcast, produced by Victor Liu. I'm Avery Ware. Today's discussion, we take a look at the ugliness of the anti-union movement. And we have to start off with some review from previous discussions. The U.S. workers' movement achieved its greatest breakthroughs in the 1930s. In 1934, three large cities... San Francisco, Minneapolis, and Toledo had citywide general strikes whose picket lines fought back and held against violent city and state government assault. This led to the passage of the Social Security Act in 1935, together with what's most crucial for this talk, the Wagner, or National Labor Relations Act, granting unions recognition if they win a majority of votes and requiring employers to bargain. Then in 1937, GM workers in Flint, Michigan, occupied their plant and held off attempts to evict them, which triggered over 400 other sit-down strikes or occupations across the country. GM, US Steel, GE, and the longtime anti-union heart of Manufacturing USA fell like dominoes, changing the balance of power between labor and capital for a generation. Blue-collar jobs went from precarious and out of control to stable and decently paid. In the coming decades, you could afford a house, retirement, and kids' college on a single-family job. But the surging progress of workers' power could not last forever. And because it left ultimate economic and therefore political power in corporate hands, it left unfinished tasks and allowed the backlash raging impotently in its midst to later build strength. One unfinished task was unionization of the U.S. South. Heroic Depression-era attempts by the Communist and Socialist parties, the Sharecroppers Union, the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, Alabama multiracial steel organizing, etc., went down to defeat for lack of resources, though they showed the potential to organize and unite the Southern working class across the racial chasm. Then in 1946, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO in today's AFL-CIO, brought its huge war chest to the task. They called it Operation Dixie. This time, the resources were there, but the politics were not. The CIO's less-than-radical leaders hoped to avoid embarrassing their northern Democratic Party political patrons by challenging Jim Crow in the historically Democratic Party South. But you couldn't unite black and white workers in the South without directly challenging white supremacy, as the 30s left-led efforts had done. So Operation Dixie died, and the South remained a Jim Crow, non-union, low-wage stronghold of conservative fanaticism that bred social and political cancers, still plaguing U.S. labor and society to this day. Southern states immunized themselves against unionization with so-called right-to-work laws, making it illegal to require union dues as a condition of employment ultimately this spread. In 2011, Wisconsin, despite 100,000 people taking over the state capitol building, passed right to work in this longtime strong union state. Union membership then dropped from 14.2% to 8.3% by 2015, a 40% drop in union membership. Right to work then passed in Indiana, and shockingly in Michigan, home of the historic 30s union victories in the auto industry. Last year, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four in the Janus v. AFSCME case that public sector unions in every state could no longer require even partial agency fees, much less full membership dues. Public sector unions, which grew up in tandem with the 60s black freedom struggle, still organize 30% of workers in our industry. That's close to the 35% high for private sector unionization in 1954. Today, the private sector's down to 6%, and the anti-union movement aims to do to the last bastion of stable working-class employment, the public sector, what they spent the last few decades doing to the private sector. In Right to Work, the anti-union forces think they have a winning argument. Union membership should be voluntary. Nobody should be forced to join a union in order to get a job. There should be a right to work. In the union movement, usually we respond by saying that everyone has to pay their fair share because that's what's necessary to have unions, and unions are necessary. That's true. But if you don't agree that unions are necessary, and very many working people don't, especially when it comes time to sign up to pay dues, then we lose the argument. But we can win that argument if we push past this and remember that nobody has a right to work. Nobody has a right to a job under capitalism. Mass unemployment is a permanent structural feature Today's historically low 3.5% unemployment still means millions of people can't find a job. And it's government policy, it's Federal Reserve policy, and it's economically necessary for the employers that there always be a reserve army of unemployed labor. Otherwise, it would be too hard to keep wages lower than the value produced by it, and thus to ensure profits. And that is why employers demand the sole right to determine all conditions of employment. That's why they require it and demand it. But there's absolutely no moral or ethical reason that society should agree and should not require that employees also have a right to say what some of our own conditions are, such as the requirement to contribute to the union elected by a majority. As long as the wealth and resources necessary to the survival of the whole society are owned and controlled by a small minority, the society not only has a right, but it must place regulations, laws, and limits on how that tiny minority exercises its control. Simply put, a tiny minority cannot be allowed to have absolute power over the resources required by the whole society for our survival. One such reasonable regulation would be the right of the working majority to require contributions from all who would join us in the workforce so that we gain some power through organization to influence what share of the wealth produced by our work goes to our survival so that it isn't too little, too little to live, or too little to have a decent life. If the society doesn't legally require that employees have that right, then it is surely wrong to just prohibit organized workers from bargaining for that right. But that is exactly what right to work does require. Before getting into the origins and true nature of the anti-union movement, Let's stop and ask why it is that these empty anti-union arguments influence the opinions not just of the wealthy, professionals, and business owners, but of working people, too. After all, workers live better wherever unions are strong. The four countries famous for free universal health care, free university education, and free child care services not coincidentally lead the world in unionization rates. Norway has 57 percent unionization. Finland and Denmark are tied at 76 percent. Sweden, 82 percent. Compare that to 10.6 in the United States. The rich countries, which have free health care, as most of them do, have much higher membership rates than the U.S., which lacks it. The U.S. is the first or second richest country by per capita gross national product, but it ranks 27th in life expectancy. Inside the U.S., unionized workers average 28% more pay than fellows in the same industry. 92% of us have health care compared to 68% non-union. 77% versus 20% have defined benefit pensions. We pay lower health care premiums. 46% of us compared to 23% have paid sick leave. We have more vacation days. Knowing all of this can be enraging to us in the labor movement. Why do so many working people here oppose their own economic interests? In fact, the decline of unionization rates and working class compensation and welfare is global, even in Scandinavia. Politics differ from country to country, but market pressures do not. Capitalists everywhere face competition that threatens their businesses and forces them to keep labor costs down and profit can only come on the average investment if the value of labor's output is above labor's price, on average. That's our pay. Those same pressures cause capitalists to keep taxes on themselves as low as possible, and that's what squeezes public sector workers. That's why businesses and the governments that organize capitalist society use their dominating social powers against unions. Those social powers—the right to hire and fire, the ability to hire labor spies, hire union-busting firms, the use of the law, the courts, the media, the corporate political parties, the police and the military—combined, that overwhelms workers, except when we're stirred up enough to leverage our massive numbers and our collective ability to stop work. And we can't stay stirred up all the time. That's why unions are hard to maintain, and it's why the history of union advance in the U.S. has never been about slow progress, but about mass struggle periods, like the 1886 hour Day movement, the 1930s and the 1960s. So part of what makes some workers anti-union is simply the fear of standing up to all of this. If it seems impossibly dangerous to resist, you hate the people who would urge you to try or who would maybe tempt you to try. But there's more to it. Everyone figures out how to survive, and that shapes how we think, maybe more than anything else. It's true that the pressures on workers force us together to share our burdens and gain strength, like we do in unions or in families or churches. But it's also true that we survive by competing against each other for jobs, for places in college, for housing, for college, for public funds, etc. So our life experience gives us as workers, all of us, a contradictory mind where the opposites of cooperation and competition both shape our thinking. Which one is stronger varies from worker to worker, but as a whole, it makes our class vulnerable to adopting a competitive worldview that leads to a politics that distrusts unions and anything else that relies on cooperation and solidarity. That competitive worldview, that I should fight other workers to survive instead of joining with them, has been stronger in the U.S. than elsewhere because of the influence of white supremacy. Where white supremacy is strongest, like the South, unions are smallest and pay is lowest. Different laws in different states are part of that, which brings me back to right to work. Now that we know why our brothers, sisters, and siblings are often willing to believe in it, let's see where it actually came from. The general strikes and factory occupations of the Great Depression split the ruling class. Roosevelt and corporations like Standard Oil, American Tobacco, the paper industry, internationally oriented investment banks, all of them supported the New Deal in order to prevent the labor movement from going further. These were the capital intensive industries where they had such heavy investment in machinery that labor was a lower share of their costs or they were internationally oriented. So They were less concerned about wages and compensation in the United States. So for them, the New Deal was less of a cost. As Roosevelt said, frustrated that he was being accused of being a socialist for the New Deal, quote, I'm the best friend the profit system ever had. But other ruling powers argued and disagreed about what to do, and a minority organized to oppose the New Deal. Alfred P. Sloan, the DuPont brothers, and others funded the Southern Committee to uphold the Constitution. This fought Roosevelt's renomination in the 1936 primaries after the passage of the Wagner Act. They backed a right-to-work constitutional amendment to counteract the Wagner Act, but that had little popular resonance or support, which they sought by other means— such as claiming that Roosevelt was undermining the racial order of the South, undermining segregation and white supremacy. One member of this committee, a professional lobbyist from Texas named Vance Muse, also founded the Christian American Association. After Roosevelt's 1936 reelection, this association produced propaganda calling the New Deal part of the, quote, Jewish Marxist agenda. In Muse's campaign against Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, who had cast the deciding 5-4 to four vote upholding the Wagner Act, he accused Frankfurter and NAACP board member Rabbi Stephen Wise of restoring Sanhedrin, the supposed Jewish council of leaders that in the sick, conspiratorial, anti-Semitic version of history had killed Christ and sought to rule the world. At the time, anti-Semitism ran high among southern conservatives, who considered the Southern Tenant Farmers Union part of a campaign by socialist CIO unionists like Sidney Hillman and Lee Pressman, who happened to be Jewish to turn supposedly contented black workers into angry proponents of Sovietization. In 1941, Vance Mews read an editorial by William Ruggles of the Dallas Morning News. In this article, Ruggles became the first to call bans on required union dues, quote, right to work laws. The phrase didn't exist before. William Ruggles coined it, Vance Mews read it, and Vance Mews make sure that we still know the term today. Muse got backing from the Arkansas Farm Bureau Administration, who had been frontline opponents of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union to pay for newspaper ads, direct mail, and lobbying. And with these, the Christian American Association put right to work on the ballot in three states in 1944. It lost in California, but it won in Arkansas and Florida. They were the first two. In his long campaign to roll back the Wagner Act, Muse once said of it, quote, from now on, white women and white men will be forced into organizations with black African apes whom they will have to call brother or lose their jobs. As Muse's own grandson wrote about him, he was, quote, a white supremacist, an anti-Semite, a communist baiter, A man who beat on labor unions, not on behalf of working people, as he said, but because he was paid to do so. Yet this figure, Vance Muse, is one of the most influential unknown figures in U.S. history due to the influence of right-to-work laws. In 1947, with the post-war strike wave died down and the Cold War ramping up, Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act over President Truman's veto, This law encouraged states to pass right to work, as well as banning solidarity strikes, giving presidential authority to ban strikes, and outlawing communists from holding elective office in unions. As a side note, it should be remembered that though Truman vetoed Taft-Hartley, he then used it 12 times himself to ban strikes. Taft-Hartley meant that by 1950, right to work had spread to 12 states. Today the number is 28. Along with McCarthyism and the failure of Operation Dixie, Vance Muses' demagoguery did more than just halt labor's advance. It solidified the South as a citadel of anti-labor capitalist white supremacy that marched outward to change or change back more and more states and the federal government itself. President Trump's views are in many ways closer to Vance Muses than to any president since the Civil War. The system must always strive to roll back union powers encroachments on capital's dictatorship. And the most foul politics come in handy when you have to confront advances that benefit the working class majority. This is true worldwide, but those foul politics have their deepest roots in the USA. Today, Janus is a reality. The employers aim to use it to make every state a Wisconsin. Yet 2018 saw more workers striking than any year since 1986. The biggest numbers struck in right-to-work states. Teachers in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, and North Carolina. Even though those teachers unions mostly had less than 50% members paying in in the right-to-work environment, rank-and-file workers still manage to organize on their own through statewide Facebook groups. The system grinds us down and eventually takes back whatever we as workers win from it. But that, in turn, pushes people back toward collective struggle. In building that struggle, we can force the system to grant again the right of unionized workers, not just the employers, to have a say in the requirements for employment. And through coming together in this way, we develop our cooperative instincts over our competitive ones, because we're coming together. And that makes our class more resistant to the arguments of the anti-union movement. It's about building a spirit of solidarity, and increasing that spirit of solidarity is also a step in making a reality of our potential power as the working class majority, which is ultimately limited only by the limits of our cooperation and our unity.